Hello, I'm AT. Welcome to the Bulldog Gear podcast, where we aim to open up conversations and create discussions around the practical habits, ethos, and philosophies of the most successful people in our industry. Here, we will endeavor to identify, unpack, and discuss the actions and habits of fiercely successful individuals in and around the fitness space in an attempt to create clear, actionable philosophies for you guys to experiment with and implement on your own journey of self-improvement. And welcome back team. This week I'm joined by Carl Pauli. Carl is an incredibly influential coach, one of the earliest advocates in developing gymnastics as a skill in CrossFit and author of the New York Times best-selling book Freestyle, which uh, some of you will know is a permanent fixture on my bookshelf. This was a majorly thought-provoking conversation for me with Carl tapping into the sometimes nebulous relationship between movement, thought and emotion and trying to draw some parallels. I sincerely hope this resonates with uh, you guys listening in and that you go away from this one with more than just a little bit to chew on. But as ever, enjoy. Hey, Cal, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Great, great to be here. Good stuff. Really appreciate your, uh, really appreciate your time today. For um, anybody listening who might not be aware of your kind of backstory and how you came into this kind of culture, um, would you mind just kind of enlighten them a little bit yeah the the brief rundown was i i grew up doing gymnastics competitive gymnastics in spain and uh, i had a dream as a boy of course of being uh, a great gymnast and great gymnasts make it to the olympics and by the time i was 16 17 i started to realize okay this is maybe uh potentially not going to happen. I, I may not get there. And uh, the reason being was I, I had all these injuries. My, my mind was, was, was not in the game as it should be. I was constantly comparing myself to how others were performing versus how I was performing. And eventually when I got to the age of uh, 18, I decided, okay, I'm going to end my gymnastics career here. And then I, I went to school, I studied environmental science, and on the side, I was uh, still performing acrobatic <laughs> exercise, so to speak, as I was involved in action sports, uh, especially uh, snowboarding and wakeboarding. And then in 2004, I moved to the U.S. from Spain, and I started coaching gymnastics at a recreational level, so uh, non-competitive athletes and that led me to really see the value of gymnastics from a completely different light and i was able to translate what i was doing with the kids to adults and that led me to uh, become a personal trainer get into the fitness industry finding crossfit and in crossfit having a little niche there which is the gymnastics body weight uh, domain of, of uh, CrossFit as a practice and sharing content there, which lived on a website that used to be uh, called Gymnastics Wad, eventually turned into Freestyle Connection. And with that came a book and this book called Freestyle, which was published in 2014. And since 2014, I've kind of transcended uh, teaching movement and now more focused on uh, lifestyle or more holistic approach and specifically talking about emotional fitness. 
That's a, a pretty pretty cool biography. I think you've managed to to span the continents there as well. Yeah. So you you are you are someone that I think of as a, a long time admirer of CrossFit, as kind of a, one of the I guess how would I put it like one of the founding fathers. I guess looking back for me when CrossFit was less uh, perhaps less streamlined than it is now perhaps less kind of you know we're talking pre the open where everyone there's kind of that funnel in towards crossfit as a sport and i guess i kind of i see you alongside guys like um say rob orlando who were doing the kind of in the the, the different areas the different as you say niches of CrossFit, mm-hmm. whereas now there's definitely, a, from my point of view at least, a sense of what CrossFit is uh, as mm-hmm. a whole. Um, is that something? Is that something that you've that you've noticed? As you know, from the point of view of, of one of these kind of godfathers, <laughs> I've noticed. I've noticed that some people have that perspective, uh, but I, I came into the CrossFit game late, technically. So uh, before me was um, in the gymnastics realm of, of CrossFit was Jeff Tucker. And before Jeff Tucker was Roger Harold. And before Roger Harold was uh, Greg Glassman. Uh, so uh, I, I am a fourth in, in line when it comes to uh, talking about gymnastics within CrossFit. But uh, something that is true is that uh, thanks to my relationship with Kelly Starrett and San Francisco CrossFit, we started producing content on our own individual channels independently from CrossFit in a way that uh, was very much in line with how they were sharing information, but with our own unique take and voice. And thus, uh, it's seeming uh, to be for a greater audience that we had uh, maybe more at stake than, than we actually had. We, we, we were just um, individual players in the, in the game and uh, we're only as significant as, as the whole. But you've, uh, you, you've dated my CrossFit knowledge there then as well. I obviously, <laughs> I obviously came in the game uh, slightly later than you then. Um, and this kind of led to the, the writing of your book, as you say, Freestyle. If you had to kind of summarize freestyle, I hate to put you on the spot, but I'm sure you've been asked this question before, or you, let's say your intention for the book freestyle, how would you kind of sum it up? Yeah, the, the philosophy of freestyle is to give people a lens where they can uh, start by accepting and respecting all styles, all ways of doing things as when it comes to moving the body and the human experience everything is trending in the same direction. So it's being able to see value in all approaches and to realize that one size doesn't fit all and that having multiple disciplines uh, woven together into a individual prescription uh, is, is the way the, to go. And that's the philosophy that the practical side of things is it's my thesis on how movement is transferable, meaning how how one movement applies to the next. And when we're able to see these patterns and recognize them, we are able to solve uh, the problems at hand without even noticing that we're solving them. And the best part of it all is that 
it uh, removes the coach from the picture and it allows the body to dictate uh, what has to happen next in order for the, if we want to call it performance, uh, to improve. And how essential to you do you think mastering your own body weight is to that kind of equation of optimizing the, the carryover of, of all pursuits? Well, mastery, regardless of what we're focused on, is the key to participate in what I would call the infinite practice, which is the practice that never ends. It has no destination. You're, you're simply returning to doing day in and day out. That's mastery. What is important, though, is becoming aware of why you are participating, why you are practicing. And for all of us, that is something that is also ever evolving. But let's say the beginning of your physical practice and specifically body weight practice is because you've seen something cool that you like, whether it's a move or a look, uh, an aesthetic, uh, anything that has attracted you to it, allow that to be the first anchor. But once that uh, has lost significance and weight, to notice the meaning behind it. Here's an example that's a little less esoteric. Hey, I want to learn how to do a handstand. Great. You start practicing handstands and all of a sudden you can hold the handstand. Now what? Do you just leave the handstand there or do you continue to practice it? Well, the mastery, which is the never-ending return, tells us to return to the practice, return to the handstand. So what are you going to focus on now if you can already do the handstand the way that you envisioned it? Well, there has to be something else. What is that? Well, maybe it's uh, refining the line. Maybe it's noticing that when you practice handstand, there are some pain points. What are those pain points? Maybe those are my shoulders. Okay, what is that telling me as a diagnosis? Maybe it's telling me that I need more shoulder mobility, more shoulder strength. How do I develop more shoulder strength? Here are some exercises. This is what I'm going to do as part of my assistance piece. And then that, which is physical, eventually taps into the emotional because you're going to get to a point where you're going to be tired. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to feel some sort of way that is going to change your mood. What changes your mood is uh, a change in state. And that change in state comes with some sort of narrative, some kind of uh, mental uh, aspect, a cognitive aspect. And it's noticing what is it you're telling yourself as a story that's affecting your mood, your emotions in relationship to this practice. And that which is your purpose, your intention behind practicing is what keeps you going. It's what keeps you steady. It's the straight line that goes through uh, the, the peaks and valleys that is our life. And in addition to that, there is another layer which uh, comes from uh, being willing to participate in mastery, which is autonomy. Autonomy being auto, self, and nami from the Greek management, self-management, self-governance, and learning to self-govern, to make decisions for yourself without being uh, influenced or having the intention to influence others. Do you feel that, maybe not by and large, but that there's a large proportion of people that after that initial anchor 
once they've gone through that initial buy-in of finding that thing that they think looks awesome or thinks look it just looks cool to do which i think is no less a noble you know a starting point for a pursuit than anything i think all of us begin with that initial buying of buy-in of i just think that looks really cool and then the story you tell yourself in your head about yourself being in this community or performing you know even something as basic as performing this movement performing a handstand do you think after that initial buy-in people struggle to find that next step or they're very easily influenced i think anchor is a great word because it's a very good metaphor for this once the anchor's not heavy enough anymore the ship drifts and do you do you think by and large people find their way into community possibly you know everything's community based in a way but they, they find their way into a tribe that doesn't necessarily align with what their next anchor point would be do you think that's an easy thing to happen particularly now when we're so interconnected yeah it's it, it's inevitable and it's it's part of the human experience i believe that life is intended to throw you off balance and our job when we participate is to learn how to find balance get into balance so it's this constant dance the problem is that a lot of us myself included we don't notice when we've been thrown off balance and we believe that we are in this uh perfect harmony when in reality uh <laughs> we're, we're we're completely chaotic and all over the place so it's it's very normal do you think there's any kind of is there a blueprint or a roadmap to finding your way to that autonomy or kind of understanding uh, this is a bit kind of uh, maybe over an overbaked sentiment, but finding your why and, you know, and finding that alignment. Yeah, th there's definitely uh, a way of doing it, but there's no blueprint. The blueprint is uh, individual. It's, there's no universal blueprint. Yes, we can, we can use universal language to get people to arrive at their individual blueprint, but there is no individual blueprint. That being said, for those who are listening, of course, they want to get some value. A, a basic blueprint when it comes to emotional fitness, for example, is first having a practice that helps you exercise awareness. And this is simply taking the time to notice where you are. Oh, I'm, I'm talking to you. We're talking about fitness. We're talking about emotional fitness where we're having a discussion around movement, noticing that, and then maybe noticing what is it this person that I'm talking to is feeling, needing, and expressing to me, and what is it that's coming up for me as I'm doing the same with him. And this is not only in our physical relationships, but also in our uh, um, practice, in the way that we interact with ourselves when we're, we're moving, we're training. So awareness would be number one. Number two would be emotional control. It's noticing that every instance of your life, every situation comes with some kind of uh, emotion, some kind of narrative. And it's simply to notice this. And the way that, um, and this is something that I would recommend everybody read if they're curious about this topic is, uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, um, How Emotions Are Created, is a great book. 
as it states that our brains are designed for um, number one, predicting what is to come. It's, it's a predicting machine. Number two, to create an emotion, an affect that preps us, puts us in the state of being that we have to be in in order to act with whatever the brain was predicting. And uh, finally, to regulate our physiology in order to allow the body to move in that direction, to do that which it is predicting it should be doing. But it's all anchored in the emotion, the mood. And this mood, this affect, is the lens through which we see the world. The problem is that our mood uh, can be deceiving. Our emotions can be deceiving. And it's learning to become aware of how our moods are affecting our expression. And that's where emotional control comes. And it's noticing, oh, here comes one emotion. Is this true? Maybe not. Okay, oh, there comes another emotion. Maybe this one is a little bit more true. And maybe it is, and you act on it, and you get the feedback, and all of a sudden, uh, you're starting to evolve emotionally. So that, that would be emotional control. The third aspect of emotional fitness or having a blueprint, as we were speaking about, would be uh, self-direction or motivation. Motivation comes from the three things that I actually already addressed, which are autonomy, purpose, and uh, mastery. Somebody who talks about this really well is uh, Daniel H. Pink in his book, Drive. Uh, he really goes into depth uh, about these, these concepts. And I've, I've kind of taken them and uh, flipped them in my own way. And we can dive into it deeper if you want later. The fourth aspect of emotional fitness or for developing a universal blueprint would be empathy. And empathy is being able to share and understand other people's feelings, but not other people, only other people's feelings, but also our own feelings. And here it's important to notice that feelings are mental concepts. Emotions are the experience of the feeling in our body. It's, it's an embodied version of the feeling. It's what we feel. Oh, I feel sad. We know what that feels like, what that emotion is like. I feel scared. I know what that feels like. Maybe it's like an adrenaline rush. And within, within um, empathy, there are several levels of empathy. There's cognitive empathy, which is more like sympathy. It's just having a mental model. There is emotional empathy, which is somebody else is crying, you start to cry, or you're in the middle of a practice and something hard is happening, you feel this emotion and you embody it. You are uh, being emotionally empathetic with yourself or with others. And finally, there's compassionate empathy, which is the ability to not only cognitively share, but be able to remember that which the um, emotion felt like and now have a, a full connection with the individual that you are uh, connecting with. And that being uh, the ultimate level of, of, of empathy. And this is not just towards others, but also towards yourself. And then the final aspect is um, relationship skills. And relationship skills is usually anchored in communication and how we exchange information. And uh, that would be a blueprint, having access to those five things. At the kind of taking it right back to the beginning of what you were saying there, in the times we're in at the moment, if we're if we're working off the premise that the the brain is a is a prediction machine, and we're in fairly unpredictable times, I think it's fair to say, 
do you think that's having a, a huge effect on people who possibly have gone quite a long way down the line of kind of honing their emotional fitness or even even if they're not even if it's not a deliberate practice they are kind of well aligned they're well adjusted and now it's kind of like it's almost been poisoned at the root because we're this ability to predict is so in question right now and already at the second stage of the of the kind of the roadmap you laid out there the next stage is assessing your emotions is this true and now mm -hmm. we're we're kind of basing this on uh, an algorithm that we can't trust anymore i.e our prediction machine because we're not 100 percent sure what's coming do you think that's going to have thrown a lot of people off track over the past year 100 percent, 100 percent. i think we've been at the beginning of the pandemic we knew so little that when we went into high alert the pendulums had a swing really far in one direction and then as the pendulum swung in one direction and in science they started moving pretty quickly and information started coming out about the maybe more truthful uh information behind covid and the virus and how this was affecting us the, the whole population had swung so quickly that it it was going to take a while for it to start to swing back the other way and there's it's like there's a delayed effect right high alert the pendulum swings really fast it's still moving in one direction data starts to come out saying hey we maybe went a little too far here let's start bringing it back and then all of a sudden being faced with uh political agendas economical agendas social agendas uh, and this happening not only at a macro scale, but also at a micro scale. Anyways, all I'm trying to say is that it became very confusing to the point where even if you are, you think you are rational, and that's the problem is that the moment you think, you know, you, you simply don't, um, things start to uh, become uh, distorted. And I'll, I'm going to give you a personal example. And this is something that happened just recently. I'm trying to follow all the guidelines. Okay, when we're in a social setting, uh, when you can't socially distance six feet or more, or you're in public transportation or in a, in a, in a store, you wear a mask. Great, we do this. Uh, and we, we're gonna follow these guidelines according to what is uh, the best science to prove uh, what works to be able to mitigate this. Okay, we're gonna do this. Even though I'm able to rationally do all those things, there's a part of me that's also challenging it and saying, well, is that totally true? Uh, can we be even uh, a little bit uh, less strict? And then in my challenging, having a dream, and in my dream, this was a very strange dream that I had the other night, uh, not very long ago, where I was with my brothers and we were at some kind of park, some water park, natural nature thing and there were a lot of people and I asked my brother who's a doctor I said uh, what are the chances of us catching or giving COVID here and there of course was no uh, real response <laughs> that made sense but but he he said 
well, people haven't really been taking naps. So I think uh, the chances are, are high. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what, what, what does this mean? <laughs> but it just comes to show that in our dreams, in this dream state, even though we mentally think we have things uh, formulated, we are so confused and we're trying to connect the dots from so many different places uh, that it, it's distorting our ability to think. It's distorting our mood. It's affecting us uh, heavily and, and some people, of course, affecting, being affected more than others and it's affecting us physically. So what can we do in order to self-govern better? Well, we need to first choose how are we going to behave in the current system? When we behave this way, how is that not only affecting me, but affecting others? And is there access to a greater level of freedom? If so, is that greater level of freedom or that next choice, that next um, behavior that I'm choosing to participate in, is it still healthy? And this is the, the uh, iterations that we all have to go through individually. And in, and in order to do that, we have to have social agreements. And these social agreements will only come if we are able to connect with others. It's complex. Yeah, it's extremely complex. And there's, there's, as you, the, your parlance there to connect the dots and we are so, how can I put this? There are so many dots now. Um, I think Taleb wrote a book called Black Swan, which is about our kind of inability mm -hmm. to rationalize that anything can just be for the sake of being, that things just happen. Sometimes mm -hmm. bad things just happen and we're, we're so predisposed, probably going back to this idea that our brain is a prediction machine and it, it needs to connect the dots in order to make these new predictions to keep us safe. And sometimes perhaps when there are too many dots to connect, we need a defrag and we need to, like you say, decide how we're going to behave within the system and what's the next uh, level of next level of freedom. I got mm -hmm. heavy there, didn't it? It, um, it did, but I think this is important because when it comes to fitness, you and I would not be having a conversation unless people were curious or struggling uh, at some level. And they're somewhere within their programming, within their practice, that there's become a knot. And everybody wants to just like, can't I untie the knot so I can progress to the next level? Everybody wants the freedom, but we need to exercise the responsibility of realizing we created that knot. Now we need to untie it. That's going to feel like a regression. With that regression, we're going to learn some things. Are you aware of what you're learning? And now that you're free, are you going to be able to operate with this new level of freedom and still be able to carry the lessons and not just dismiss all the work that you did? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I think that that's kind of because we are, we are want to polarize. That's kind of the two, two of the big camps I see emerging now is the kind of optimistic. What can I do? Kind of maybe optimistic is the wrong time, but the stoic, kind of what can I do in this situation and the I don't have my tools to hand and I need these tools and it's very it's very easy for one camp to look at the other and not fully understand because you know they're they're projecting different models right and that's going to create tension 
and I, I'm loath to kind of use this and trying to be empathetic and understand that everyone creates these projections for their own reasons, but they're kind of not having access to a gym. Um, do you think there's fear that people are, are building too much of an identity around or, you know, too much of relying too heavily on the idea that of what they need instead mm-hmm. of taking stock of what they can do within these current parameters that will fulfill them still in a way that they were being fulfilled or being served by the model that currently doesn't exist, right? These new parameters that we've got to operate within, what can I get out of them? Do you think that for some people there's kind of a a blockage? They're finding it difficult to give in to that idea that if they just did an audit, understood what they could still do in this situation and understood that perhaps there's things that might actually be better for them in these current parameters, it would be a smoother ride? It would be, but it, it, it requires them to take responsibility, and that's uncomfortable. That's just how it is. And um, let's say if you're used to always going to a gym, having a coach, having the group of friends around you, and that's what you're used to, uh, that's a habit. Once that has been removed, uh, you may enter into just like fall through the abyss of the crack that has been created. but. Once you notice that you can actually continue to participate in that which was bringing you uh, some kind of fulfillment or uh, value, such as going to the gym, that you can find it anywhere. Now you start taking control over your life. Yes, you may like a different version more than the one that you currently have, but it doesn't take away from the value that uh, being self-directed, uh, has to, has to offer. And that's, that's very powerful if, uh, we're willing to participate. The other thing is most people and myself included, I'm probably not even aware of, of where I do this, uh, most of the times, but we, we tend to, uh, reference externally. So we, we, we use external references to try to build a picture of how we're doing. When in reality, uh, the, the way to go is to be able to self-reference, to find that place within you that, uh, like Maya Angelou would say, is pristine, is clean, is pure, and you can always access and compare or um, re- reference from there. And that comes only the noticing of that place that is inside of you that is pristine. That comes only by taking matters into your own hands. And, and that is taking full responsibility. What that looks like to each individual is very different. And that's, that's a discussion that uh, I think we have to have. And that's where I think this, this comes into play. Yeah, I, I really like that. The, the idea of that there is a place inside you that you can always reference to see if you are on, on the right track like that governing body within you and i think it it harkens back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about this idea of finding that initial anchor and then maybe being uh how can i how can i put it with the anchor analogy still maybe the sails are up but the wind isn't blowing in the right direction for you right and you end up and i think we've all fallen victim to this at some points in our life where our initial why becomes wrapped up 
in a new identity, like a really easy kind of um, kind of obvious example would be like, I want to get into shape. So I joined this CrossFit mm -hmm. gym and now I'm a, I'm a CrossFitter because this is my tribe, but the, the actions and the, the, the things that are taking place now you're in that tribe don't necessarily still align with your initial, initial goals, right? Mm -hmm. How can people access that place within themselves to really audit whether or not they are pursuing the goals that are, you know, to use the kind of what is almost corporate speak now, but how do they find their why? No, but pe people, people talk about this all the time. And I think that's something that uh, Simon Sinek definitely popularized, which is great. It's not necessarily about um, so much the, the why, it's more so about the, the who. It's, it's realizing who am I? And when you realize who you are, uh, and you continue to play that game, you, you start to arrive at a place where there, there is more clarity. You notice, well, this, in these situations, I, I can play a role that looks like this. In this situation, I play a role that looks a little bit different. And this is where something that has helped me uh, is, uh, for example, the Japanese art of purpose, ikigai, which uh, directly translates into the reason for being. And in Ikigai, there are four different aspects that you have to explore. One is all that which you love. The second one is all that which you're good at. The third one is all that which you do in this world to transact value. And finally, it's um, all that which you believe the world or you need more of. So... When you have access to that which you love, that which you're good at, that which you do in, in exchange for value, and that which the world needs more of, you start to notice that there's a slight overlap between, between them. There's an overlap between that which you love and that which you're good at. That usually indicates what you're passionate about. Then you have an overlap between that which you are uh, good at and that which you do in exchange for value. That usually determines what your profession is. And then you have um, an overlap between that which you do in exchange for value and that which the world needs more of. And that usually relates more to your vocation. Here, the difference between profession and vocation is that profession is purely transactional. It's what you do. And vocation is the contribution that that transaction makes. And it's slightly different. And then uh, you have the overlap between that which you love and that which the world needs more of. And that usually determines your mission. And your mission is uh, basically your purpose statement. And if you can identify what your purpose statement is, now you have not only a, a clearer picture of who you are, what you are ever evolving, but you also have a clearer picture of the intention behind who you are and how you do things. And when you can express your intention clearly to others, um, all of a sudden you get the feedback that you need to learn how to better self-reference. And how, how could we kind of use that as a diagnostic tool if we were to kind of zoom in to 
the microcosm of your let's say your, your training goals obviously there's going to be areas there for the average person you know great if you're if you're a coach if you you know if you're someone in this industry that can find the the kind of venn overlap of all those four things that is obviously fantastic and what we need more of in the world and in every you know in every pursuit in every industry how can individuals look within and identify possibly what their kind of i don't want to undersell this but what their what their fitness goals are like what what pursuit is going mm-hmm. to kind of fill them with the curiosity and i think i'm i'm going back to what i was asking before like we get swept up in these tribes and these identities of you know i'm i'm a person i'm a i'm a i'm a crossfitter now i'm a bodybuilder now i'm a powerlifter now mm-hmm. and there's you know you're kind of picking up this one basket with these eggs and all of those eggs aren't necessarily for you right that was an awful metaphor i do apologize um no i, I it makes it makes sense it makes sense and how how can people because i know i know you speak a lot about finding the joy in the mastery of of what you're doing and i, I i'm a firm believer that you can do that in absolutely anything I've i've had days of doing days and weeks on end of doing like general manual labor in the rain mm-hmm. where I'm so happy because we are enjoying trying to be the best at what we're doing or we're competing and it's fun and there's camaraderie and there's people that are miserable. And the only difference between us is I'm indulged. I'm engaged in the, in the process. Mm-hmm. How do people in, you know, in, in terms of zooming into those health and fitness goals, how can people be sure that they are following the path you know going with the wind that's that's best suited for them well i don't know if i knew i wouldn't be talking to you i wouldn't be talking (laughs) to anybody (laughs) you know i don't know but what i what i do know is that you are not your goals your goals are simply a path that is there to reveal who you are and this, most people don't want to hear this because they're, they're thinking, well, that's too esoteric and I need mm-hmm. practical outcomes. Okay, well, then just focus on your goal and just do the mechanics. When you're ready, let's have the other conversation because it's going to arrive. One day you're going to be hurt. One day you're going to be in an, a vulnerable position. One day you're going to have loss. One day you're going to feel like you are lost. One day you're going to be in a place where you're lost and you're uncertain as to what you have to choose because you know that if you choose, you're saying no to a lot of other things. In other words, your mindset is that if you choose, you lose. Thus, I need to choose right. And that pressure of having to choose right is killing. And that day when that comes, it's realizing that no matter what you choose, because you chose it and you are choosing to participate in it, you are taking full responsibility that ownership itself is the value behind practice. So it doesn't matter what your goal is as long as you're able to notice that. And that will only come when you go full circle. Full circle is saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stick with it till completion or until I can't go anymore. And when the time comes that I need to make another choice, I'm going to make that choice and I'm going to own that choice. And I'm going to make as many adjustments as I need to, but from a deliberate place, not from a reflexive place. A reflexive place is the reactive place. That's the one of scarcity. That's the one of fear. That's the one of having to 
compare yourself to other people and being unable to self-reference. A deliberate approach is the one that comes from you, where you truly know, you sense, you believe that what you're choosing is the choice for you today, regardless of what's going to happen tomorrow. And being able to return to that place over and over and over again is that which is nurturing, that which makes you more whole, healthy. It allows you to connect with others and just be, really just be uh, during practice, during life. And that's the essence, that, that's the secret. And everybody is trying to chase it, but you don't have to chase it. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do anything. It's right here. And when you can see that, that it's right here, all of a sudden, everything starts to move in a very steady fashion. And it's very powerful. And sometimes it only makes sense in retrospect. It only makes sense when you look backwards. Yeah, I definitely think from a, from a point of view of physicality, perhaps this is something that comes with age or just time in the, you know, time in the trenches or whatever you want to call it. But everyone's very outcome focused, mm-hmm. but there's no outcome. You don't, you know, you, it, it, we, we live by these stories. We tell ourselves, right. But the stories that are external, the stories we get to watch have an end we don't have an end or, you know, you're not going to be, you're not going to be aware of it. Um, I think there's a, like you say, when you find that space where you realize whatever I focus on today, whatever I focus on for the next two weeks, whatever I focus on for the next six weeks, there's no outcome. There will just be something else at the end of that. And I'm, I'm talking about this in a, in a training sense of the word, of course, plan, of course, program, we'd all be out of a job if people didn't, if sets and reps didn't matter. But the idea that reaching this goal will somehow fulfill something or not reaching it will somehow not fulfill something is very limiting, I think. I think people grab hold of this and you, you can kind of either end up or on, on either end of the spectrum being disappointed. And I say to people all the time, like, well, are you going to stop? Are you going to stop training? Are you going to stop kind of nurturing your physicality? And if you're not, then what does it matter what you do today or what you do tomorrow? Because there's no ends to this. And just, I guess, too many people get caught up, right? Yeah. I mean, for anybody listening, just, just think about anything that you have achieved. If you initially set out to achieve something, you probably had a pretty clear vision of what it looked like and what it was going to feel like. And the day you achieved it, the day it arrived, it probably didn't look the way that you thought it was going to look. And the feeling that you thought was going to be there maybe didn't exist. Or if it was there, it faded away really quickly. I remember the day that I uh, got a call and was told, hey, you became a New York Times bestseller. And I was like, wow, that is so cool. I went down to tell my parents I was, I was uh, on vacation and we were at this little summer house. And I went down to tell my family and I said, hey, uh, everybody, I'm a New York Times bestseller. They're like, woo, 
literally 90 seconds later, we're talking about the weather. We're talking about something completely different. It faded away. Yeah. yeah. So it's completely irrelevant. <laughs> and that's not to diminish the idea of that's not no, to it's fantastic. the idea of having a goal and and striving to achieve try, striving to achieve goals or even enjoying them when they arrive. But mm-hmm. it's kind of this idea that that's just one step or you know it's, if you it's, put it's your, a collage. Yeah, if you, yeah. Yeah, if you put your life and your identity in your accomplishments and your outcomes, uh you're setting yourself up for um failure uh in experience. Meaning you're always going to feel unfulfilled. You're never going to feel that wholeness or sense of, oh, I have really no regrets. I I did and gave all I had uh, in the best way I could. And for that, I'm grateful. Yeah. Yeah. And what uh, what a sort of fantastic mindset to be able to foster as well, right? Yeah. And just because I'm saying it doesn't mean that I have it. I'm, I fall off the wagon all the time. I'm, co- I'm constantly getting back on the wagon. And that's why uh, having practices that we return to every day is, is the key. So the gym closes and I can't go take classes. I'm going to continue my fitness journey wherever I am. Oh, it doesn't fit my schedule. It doesn't matter. I'm going to carve it out where I can. I'm going to find the openings. And in the openings, I'm going to make it happen. Oh, it doesn't look like it used to look like, and it doesn't feel like it used to feel like. Well, what does it feel like? Does that new feeling bring you value? If so, what is the value? Notice that. Talk about it. Share that. Think about it. Let that integrate. Uh, That's the process. And it's never ending. It's never ending. Yeah, the process is such an important word, I think. And it, process versus outcome is obviously something talked about in these in these circles a lot. And I, I'm glad, you know, I'm hugely glad that it's something that's being kind of espoused more and elucidated on and the mechanics of how to kind of shift into this, you know, this di- project, this different model of yourself that is. Because mm-hmm. like you say, there are, I've had some really recent examples of, things that once upon a time happening that would have been incredibly important to me Mm -hmm. and i'm so glad that i'm in a space now where i could recognize them for what they are which is very nice very nice Mm -hmm. and i feel they they add to my contentment they don't necessarily Mm -hmm. fuel any temporary happiness but they add to my contentment and they acknowledge they give me acknowledgement that i'm on the right path and i it's something I've spoken about in private, but I'm so glad to actually be, it's odd. It's odd to not be as excited as people would expect you to be about things because you're like, yeah, this is great. It really does prove that I'm, I'm doing something good, but I'm more of the sum. Mm-hmm. I'm more, you know, I want to be more than the sum of, of that outcome. Um, just to kind of boil this down to nuts and bolts have you noticed a, a big uptake in people's interest in your practice? Um, you know, your, your literal sets and reps practice since, uh, since lockdown? Mm, no. <laughs> no? 
<laughs> people don't want to see it. People don't want to hear it. Uh, at least not uh, a great majority. But there is a certain group of people who are slowly starting to come around and they're wondering, mm, maybe there is some truth to this simplicity that you are uh, talking about and what you're demonstrating physically. I mean, I have made some improvements on my own physical practice and people are kind of noticing that. Um, they're like, oh, maybe there's something there. But the majority of people, uh, they don't really want to do the work. And those who I have worked with, can, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, th those who I have worked with have uh, have kind of arrived at a place where they realize, wait a second, I didn't, I didn't really need to do this because I was already doing. It. In other words, uh, people people who want to participate uh, either don't want to do the work <laughs> or are realizing that, oh yeah, I'm already doing it. I just haven't appreciated that I was doing it. And that's very powerful. So that, that's been a, a beautiful uh, part of what I've experienced through the, the pandemic. Um, and the other thing is people are, this is the, the most positive, is that people are a little bit more receptive to talking about the convoluted uh, topic of emotions and uh, a state of being in a way that doesn't have to be put into these perfect little buckets uh, that fit in our minds. So that, that, is, that is really positive. But it's a very, very slow, very slow um, uh, progression. Yeah, yeah, I reckon... Uh... <laughs> yeah i can imagine like you you kind of bat not battling but that you've got both ends of the of the spectrum there right of the people who can just recognize and go oh yeah i, I do that actually that's cool that's cool that that that's something i already do and the other people that the blinkers on yeah i would say that, let me just kind of try to summarize this 25 percent of people want to participate 25 percent of people dismiss it 25% of people feel inferior and thus they project their, their problems. And another 25% of people feel uh, like it's so simple that they, they, they project their su superiority or righteousness. Uh, so it's, it, that's kind of the, the state of, uh, of being of the, the situation. Yeah, but you're still smiling, so that's great. I mean, I, I, I feel, I feel pretty good. <laughs> That's what matters, right? That's what matters. Yeah. I in feel a, great. In freestyle, you talk about the, the main movements. I want to phrase this correctly, but the main movements that, um, I don't know how I'll let you explain it, but I don't know how you would put it, but the main movements that you perceive to be the, the fundamental or most, most important uh, in general practice. Could you give us a quick rundown of, of what those are? Yeah, the, the movements are um, a pistol squat, a handstand push-up, a muscle-up, and a burpee. And um, these are just forms of squatting mechanics, pushing mechanics, pulling mechanics, and combinations of, of them. And the reason they're presented like that in the book is because when you write a book 
uh, you are faced with um, a, a limited amount of pages that you can write and a limited amount of information that you can share. And it has to be um, directly related to an audience. And in my case, it was majority CrossFit audience with the intention of being able to bridge beyond that. Uh, so uh, anything that I wrote in that book is limited in thinking. <laughs> but it was my best attempt at talking about pushing and pulling mechanics for the lower and upper body and combinations of them in a way that uh, is transferable, meaning that if you learn it in this way, it can translate into other things that you may be interested in. Yeah, I, I mean, I really like the, the movements. And I think they tie in really nicely with the things that you you talk, I can't remember how long ago I read. When did Freestyle come out? It was published in 2014. Yeah, I remember reading it over the course of time I was commuting. I was on the tube, so I can't even think of where, where I, you know, when that would have been. But I really like oh, wow. those movements, how they relate to what you talk about now in terms of uh, mastery, because they it was a bit of a faux pas for me maybe to call them fundamentals because you're talking about the muscle up and the pistol squat and handstand, handstand mm -hmm, press ups. Mm -hmm. But I really like the idea of those in line with the things you talk about now, because I don't want to go back on everything we've just said and call them end goals, but they are fantastic movements that require attention and require purposeful practice with with a kind with an outcome at the end of it but the 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 steps necessary are going to be different for everyone to reach those movements right but the the purpose mm -hmm. of reaching those you know for me the purpose reaching those let's call them standards gives you is a powerful tool like the the fun mm -hmm. you can have on the way and the the side effects physically spiritually mentally are going to be huge right like versus just saying mm -hmm. the fundamental movements are an air squat this is not to diminish anyone else's work but the idea of starting at this other end i almost see like there's people going to switch off now as soon as i start saying this but i almost see parallels with an idea of um chasing enlightenment through simplicity right you know the zen is not standing at the window thinking about zen it's standing at the window it's it Mm -hmm. simplicity of you're just chasing these movements and being present with the idea of ticking these movements off as such, even though that would kind of go against the idea of being outcome based. I've always found that fascinating. And yeah, it's what you were saying about this idea of a proportion of people that would feel inferior and project that. I think it was very risky to take the, to put those movements in as they were and as you say in a book where you're limited on the amount of space the 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 coward or the appeaser might have been tempted to say let's you know let's simplify this for a, a, make mm. a broader audience happy so i kind of uh, applaud you for that um have, has your idea on any of that your ideas on any of that changed over the years i mean they changed before i even published the book <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're kind of screwed either, either way um the the beauty of it is that uh, if we go back to the anchor analogy it serves as an anchor for starting a conversation and what's cool about 
the book uh, as it is right now is that it at least serves as a starting point to some degree for people. And it doesn't matter if it's uh, being able to do a muscle up or simply learning how to squat pain-free or developing the ability to squat in a fuller range of motion and thus giving you a little bit more of movement freedom. It, it, it's that simple. And I also have to admit that um, when I published the book, I, I knew less than I knew now, so I was probably naive um, in, in many, many regards. So. Uh, uh, let's just say I was pretty lucky and it, it worked out pretty well. And uh, the, but the job is not done. It, it needs to be stress tested and it needs to be adapted. And I have a vision. So anyone listening, if you have actually read the book from start to finish and you've studied the material and you really uh, have put it to the test, if there's anything that you've discovered that uh, feels incomplete or uh, could be uh, perfected or improved, let me know. I want to hear that because I have a feeling that this book can have a second edition uh, rewritten in almost a collaborative uh, fashion uh, with me and the readers. And uh, that's something that I, I simply have in my head uh, that could potentially happen as I kind of see the book as open sourced um, material. I'll, uh, I'll get my highlighter out then and uh, go, uh, go get it out of the bookcase. Good. Dude, I've got some quick fire questions. I call it a toolbox talk. And the, the kind of idea behind this is to as you said, to kind of crowdsource some wisdom and give people some immediately actionable stuff that they can kind of go away and do. And hopefully along the way, and I'm starting to see it already, I think we're, we're sort of eight or nine episodes in and I'm seeing some really common denominators that are becoming quite interesting. And it's giving me a lot to, lot to think about. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fire them at you now. If you could make one book or piece of media, compulsory reading or watching for either people new to the industry, training, or indeed everybody, what would it be and for what reason? And don't feel limited to a book. It could, you know, any, any kind of absorbable media. I mean, the Tao Te Ching would be a great book to read and work with. How comes? Well, I think when it comes to fitness, uh, fitness is the pursuit of understanding and understanding being knowledge in context and knowledge being the accumulation of information and information being only accessible through observation and exploration. In the Tao Te Ching, it's, it's very clear that uh, when you look at the rain, the rain doesn't need to be translated. It's just something that's happening. And just by observing, you can learn about it. This is, this is uh, the essence of science. This is the essence of philosophy. This is the essence of uh, understanding. So the, the Tao uh, could be a very interesting book if you're able to work with each uh, chapter or verse and see the application. I'm going to go on record and say, I think you're the first person who said that. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good. If you could go back in time 
and speak to yourself in the first year or two of your training career or just your adult life, what advice would you have for yourself? I would say work with the pain and continue to polish the basics. As you do that, enjoy playing the game. This is one of those questions that um, I'm really noticing common themes in. And uh, I think I'll, I'll elucidate on it in the future once I've had a chance to unpack. But uh, yeah, there's some real sort of common common themes coming up, which are hugely positive. What one or two daily or weekly habits, our actions, possibly unique to you, do you feel have contributed most to your success or just contentment, I think is the word I'm going to use here? Yeah, that would be journaling slash meditation slash my physical practice, especially when it comes to handstands that that happens daily. And it's uh, the best the best thing that I do every day that it really is a, is a good reset and a reminder of, of uh, what's really valuable. Do you find with the handstand particularly that is this something to do with the level of presence and the level of mindfulness possible in order to continue the mastery and continue on the journey with that particular movement, particular discipline? Do you find that is something that's attractive to you? Yeah, the, the simplicity of it is something that is I'm very attracted to. And there are an infinite number of layers that you peel back. You never arrive uh, anywhere. And it's as simple as, I mean, my hands, I've noticed my hands have changed uh, just in the last year. And the way that I'm in contact with the ground has changed. And the way that I position my hands uh, a certain dexterity um, that comes with it, a, a completely new relationship between the the floor and uh, myself. There's just this connection with it. Plus, as you're starting to work on um, technical positions that are uh, at the edge of your ability, it, it pulls you immediately into focus. And then there's a place where when you arrive at a proficiency level, you can completely let go and you just enter this completely new room and you can't tell anybody about it because they don't care. They can't see it. You can only experience it. So it becomes your own little thing. And you're kind of like, Oh, this is, this is a, a secret, a truth that only I have access to. And I know that other people experience it, but we are not uh, competent enough to be able to articulate in a way uh that we can share it so it's this unshareable uh serene place that you can go to i think the the practice of handstand is an incredible leveler an incredible experience in humility that carries over so well to every other physical practice and being awfully bad at balancing on my hands has taught me so much about myself like I, I thought I'd achieved this level of patience and you know kind of oh you know I'm just going to master the process and it doesn't matter what the outcome is and all you know all this good all these good buzzwords I was telling myself and then 
then I'm that guy going, well, why do I want to do that anyway? You know, on that. Guy I, going, I, yeah. <laughs> I ask myself, I ask myself that every day. I, there's every day. There's a moment where I'm like, why am I doing this? This is so stupid. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember now. I remember. And then once I remember, I'm just back to it. Yeah. It, uh, for me, it's almost that when I notice that resistance of oh, why am I even doing this? That that's the, that's the key. The same in meditation, right? When I'm like, oh, I don't I've yeah. got stuff to be getting on with. That's when I need to meditate for twice as long because I'm like, it's the resistance that sends you mm-hmm. in the correct direction, right? Yeah, that's where the impulse has to be greater than the conditioning. The yeah. impulse to practice has to be greater than what you're conditioned to do. Agreed. Can you name one item that you've purchased or acquired relatively inexpensively that has given you a huge return on investment, whether that's something that's benefited your training your nutrition or your productivity in business or just your general contentment, something people could go out and buy that could change their life? This is a great question. I mean, I would just say buy a journal, uh, just a notebook and keep that. And in that notebook, write down ideas, uh, write down uh, what you read, write down what's happened, uh, write down all your dirty little secrets and, and keep them there and date it, put a time on it, and then uh, keep those journals for, for reference. Uh, and, and you'll find, I, I have ideas from 20 years ago that I'm trying to bring to life today. And it's because I've been able to go back in time and look at something I wrote or I drew uh, back then. So yeah, I, a journal costs $5 or you can get one for free if you go uh, you know, to some kind of thrift store or something. How often do you go back and reference um, kind of old, old journals or old entries? This is actually a great question. I thought about this the other day. It probably only happens every six months to a year. I try not to look back unless there's something that I'm working on and I am, am having just like light bulb moments and those light bulb moments as I write them down, I'm, I'm moving so fast away from them that I'm forgetting them that I have to kind of go back and be like, oh, what were, what were those things that I wrote there? Oh yeah, there it is. Yeah, I, I found um, the iPhone to actually be a fantastic tool for this. And those moments, that, those things that come to you in the moment where you, you don't have the facilities to do anything about it, to record it or whatever, like I found, I'm not going to say it now because it's near me, but the, the voice that I would just literally ask my phone to remind me at a time when I know I will be free, you know, remind me at six o'clock tonight and I'll just say mm-hmm. the words. And sometimes the way it's interpreted is, in, is hilarious because it doesn't look like anything that has any kind of merit, but it's just enough to snap me back and go, I would hate myself in six months time when I remember this again and then forget mm-hmm. again and then remember again. And we, mm-hmm. our brains are designed for having thoughts, right? Not keeping them and offloading that is just such a powerful tool. So yeah. Yeah. Out journal agree yeah for the i think just just to just to quickly reflect back to you to remember that practice itself is remembering in meditation for example let's say you're focusing on the breath and then you're just paying attention to it if your mind goes and wanders off in thought and you lose focus from the breath it's the moment you notice that you've wandered off 
and you say, oh, wait, I'm paying attention to my breath, and you return, it's the remembering and the return. That is the practice in itself. It's not focusing on the breath, but rather coming back to the breath. It's the return that is the practice. Yeah, so, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't learn anything yeah. about yourself if you could just stay on your breath the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's that going to teach you? Exactly. If you could perform only one exercise or move, I feel like what well, I feel like I know the answer to this already. If you could perform only one exercise or movement for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? I think it would be just get on the ground and back up. And the reason is because within getting on the ground and back up, you can you can uh, develop all the major uh, movement uh, windows that that we have access to. And to practice this in multiple forms, I mean, you can do it with, uh, without using your arms, with using one leg, uh, by only by uh, not hinging forward, doing into a, going into a back bend, uh, by not y- using your hips. Uh, maybe that's just your knees. So all of a sudden you're doing something that looks more like a sissy squat. It, it has, it has a, an infinite number of uh, applications. You have so many combinations. Yeah, right. And what could be more functional than the ability to get back up? Yeah. From the from the ground. I think there's a there's a huge as as the rise and rise of quote unquote functional fitness goes on, there's there's an echo, another voice, a call and response of people who really hate burpees, <laughs> which is, you know, fair enough. That's entirely up to them. They can include in their practice what they wish, but diminishing the idea that the ability to stand back up from the floor is you know not a useful movement for a human being to have seems mm-hmm. a little bit silly and uh, possibly throwing the baby out with the bathwater right yeah unfortunately the the whole people not liking burpees is <laughs> as as coaches trainers it's our fault because we include burpees when we don't know what to do we we include it when uh, we want them to just breathe heavy and do something simple. We include it when uh, it's somebody's birthday and we should do birthday burpees. We include it when somebody is late and they should do penalty burpees. We have completely uh, <laughs> abused, <laughs> yeah, abused this movement pattern uh, in a way that's made it um, completely uh, um, disposable for, for people's, uh, in people's minds. Um, yeah. And they're like, why should I do something that's so uncomfortable? And you guys just throw it in like it, it, it's not a big deal. Yeah, it's become a lot. And, and nor do you teach us, nor do you teach us how to do it. Uh, nor do you challenge a variety. In it. You're not making it fun. You're boring. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge advocate of the burpee. Um, and the idea of using it as a punishment has definitely is it, it's uh it's not been good for its PR has it no. <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a movement and I'm someone who I use it liberally in my programming but because I enjoy the movement and because I truly believe that if there's one movement like you said if there's one movement I want to be able to do for the rest of my life it's getting up um, mm-hmm. but perhaps even I, you know, for a 100% sure thing that I'm also guilty of, especially right now, and you know, uh, in a position where a lot of people don't necessarily have the tools or the the know-how to use the tools they do have to elicit certain effects, 
it's definitely getting uh it's getting a lot of play isn't it yeah we can yeah. all do a little better yeah yeah i think that's actually uh we can all do a little better is a is a great note to end on i hugely appreciate your uh your time carl where can people find you if they want to hear a little bit more yeah you can just uh, google me <laughs> you'll find me there you'll find me on google yeah just uh, look up my name carl powley and uh you'll see me and another carl powley who's who's become a friend of mine he's an artist but uh i'm the freestyle guy and the author he's the actor fantastic and i highly recommend to everyone listening that you head over to carl's instagram and uh just have a look through his his igtv take some time sit down take a breath and just be open-minded and absorb everything that Carl's saying, because if you allow it to, it will make a difference in your life. So uh, thank you for this evening or this morning as it is there for you. And also thank you for that content also, because it's been very useful for me and I know very useful for many others. Awesome. Thank Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity to, to share here. Thank you very much. Take care, mate. Thank you.